Exodus 34, please turn your Bibles there with me. I'm going to finish up the, this chapter, as Heath mentioned. It's really a larger section, Exodus 32 through 34. Uh, is one big section on this golden calf incident that magnifies the value of the mediator. Uh, the value of uh, Moses as the mediator between God and his chosen people. And you think that he is the only one standing between the just judgment of God and the people of Israel. Uh, and so Moses goes back up the mountain. We read this last week. Uh, he has two tablets, but these tablets are blank. He's hopeful. All of the people are hopeful uh, that the God who has delivered them, the God who has provided for them, who goes before them, that he will... Uh, look favorably uh, upon them. And he hears from the very mouth of God who he is. So we find that the rest of this chapter, beginning here uh, in verse 10, both a, a renewal and a radiance, God renewing his covenant promises, um, what he will do, what is required of uh, the people in covenant with him, and then the radiance of Moses as the mediator uh, when he returns to the people. So we're going to look at sections of renewal and radiance in the text as we go along. Let's ask the Lord's blessing uh, as we approach uh, His Word together. Lord God, we are indeed grateful that You have spoken to us in a way that we can understand. You've given us Your Word. We pray that You would uh, speak now through the power of Your Holy Spirit. Um, Lord, guard our hearts and guide us in the understanding of, of how, how to apply this text, what it means for us, what it means for your people from generation to generation. Lord, we thank you that you have given us this script, the great story of your redeeming work from beginning to end. Lord, we praise you and we thank you for your word. And as it accomplishes its purpose in these moments, be glorified in that. We offer this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, I'm not much of a fisherman, so if you are from Arkansas, don't stop listening yet. Um, but I remember when I first started fishing, I mean, the very first time I took out that little pole, my dad, he taught me a very important lesson, at least I think it was an important lesson, when fishing with live bait. And this was, a, this was you know, on the job. He showed this to me. He took the worm and he ripped the worm in half. That was a gross part. And then he threaded the worm on the hook but it covered the hook completely. And he said, you want to cover the hook entirely. Don't let any hook you know, be sticking out of the worm because if the fish sees that or the fish goes up for a nibble and hits the hook, it's not going to come back to the bait. It's going to stay away. Now, there are a lot of different ways you can use fishing and fish hooks uh, as pictures, but I want to mention it this morning because Moses and the people have seen the hook of God's holiness that's kind of strange. What do you mean by that? Let me explain what I mean by that. Moses, as representing the people, they have heard the very name of God, who He is, what He is like. He's merciful. He's compassionate. He's slow to anger. He's faithful, but He's also just. So He's merciful and He is just. And so His people, the Israelites in the wilderness, His people today, the church, they're bound to believe both of those things. That He is merciful and just. Fully merciful and just. That God will save those who turn to Him, who repent and turn in faith. 
but he must also judge those who do not repent or obstinate. And the judgment of a, of a holy God is a very real threat, dare I say an important threat, even for the faithful. When we know and believe God's judgment for sin, that, that generates a humility in us. We look at our past sins. One of the Puritans, his name was Thomas Manton, he gives us this language. He says, in threatenings, there's the judgment, there's the hook. In threatenings, we see the deserts of sin. And we will never understand how displeasing our sins are to God till you read the curses. Then the soul will say, oh, what have I done? I deserve to be cast into hell, but grace has saved me. So the threatenings are what make us more watchful. Either the fish sees the danger, the hook, and stays away from the judgment that that hook represents. So we're more vigilant, more careful when we see the danger and the end result of our sin before a merciful and just God. So the people have sinned, they've broken covenant with the Lord, they're under His mercy, and yet deserving of His wrath. So the threatenings, the hook of holiness has made them watchful, and I think primed them uh, for what happens next between the Lord and their mediator. So the Lord speaks to Moses, verse 10. He said, Behold, I am making a covenant before all your people. I will do marvels such as have not been created in all the earth or in any nation. And all the people among whom you are shall see the work of the Lord, for it is an awesome thing that I will do with you. So the Lord isn't starting over here with Israel. He's reinstating that covenant that He has already made with them. Much of what we read in chapters 19 and 20 is reasserted with these words. Not just a reminder, but a, a gracious renewal, remaking of what has been Broken. And normally when you know, two parties are making covenant, there's an outside witness to this covenant. But in this case, God Himself is the witness. He can swear by His own name. There is no higher authority than the sovereign Creator. So He's going to do marvelous things, great things among His people and through His people. He's already shown them this. He's taken them from, from Egypt, embarrassing the God of the Egyptians, showing them to be no gods at all. So when God renews His covenant here, it includes everything that the people need, everything that He is to them. It includes His deliverance. It includes His provision. It includes His protection, His forgiveness. Think of how just unmatched is the faithfulness of God for His people. He's going to show His glory among the nations. That is the goal. And that has always been the goal. I mean, we know the people of Israel as our ancestors in the faith only because God has chosen them. Chosen to show His glory through them. His mighty saving works. So that peoples everywhere would know who He is and worship Him. Psalm 96, it just shouts this theme. Oh, sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord all the earth. Sing to the Lord, bless His name. Tell of His salvation from day to day. Declare His glory among the nations. His marvelous works among all the peoples. It almost sounds like a broken record at this point going through Exodus, but the people in the wilderness have absolutely no grounds for boasting in themselves. 
None. I mean, they've shown that in themselves that they are good and faithful at grumbling and turning from the Lord. They're stiff-necked people, entirely dependent on the Lord's mercy, His compassion. Because of His very name, He is going to show them this. He'll deliver on His promises, bring them into the land. He drove out the Egyptians. He's going to drive out the peoples from the land of Canaan. All will know of His glory. Awesome deeds among the people. So they have to look to God in in faith, abide by the covenant obligations that He gives to them. If they want to live and enjoy blessing in the land, in relationship with their Creator and Redeemer, then they must heed His warnings. Obey His commands. Why do this? Because He's delivered them. Because He is their Creator. He's the Father of His people. He knows them infinitely uh, more than they know themselves. Made them for His glory. And he, t- he tells them what it looks like to make His glory known. So it's really through verse 28, uh, we read a sampling of covenant commands here. Some moral commands, some ceremonial uh, laws seem to address the specific area that was especially dangerous in light of where the people had had already been with the golden calf. Verses 12 through 16, just a flashing warning sign for the people, which they're going to hear through Moses. Take care lest you make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land to which you go, lest it become a snare in your midst. You shall tear down their altars and break their pillars and cut down their asherim, for you shall worship no other god. For the Lord, whose name is Jealous, is a jealous God. Lest you make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land. And when they whore after their gods and sacrifice to their gods, and you are invited, you eat of his sacrifice. And you take of their daughters for your sons, and their daughters whore after their gods, and make your sons whore after their gods. So the temptation, God knows the temptation here for his people. That the temptation is going to be very great to buddy up with the worship practices of the nations. Especially when you have different ethnic groups coming together. And there there are different ethnic groups already coming out of Egypt, sharing in this journey in the wilderness. And so the mixing of of races, marriage among the different ethnic groups, that wasn't the warning, that wasn't the problem. It's the different religions and worship practices that are brought into that marriage and into uh, the family that they're warned about. Of course, it doesn't take long for us to see what a problem this would be for the Israelites. The very generation born in the wilderness is going to fall prey to this very thing. Numbers chapter 25. Um, we see it again in Judges. We know the great downfall of, of King Solomon and his many wives from other lands and the great temptation to compromise and turn away from the living God. So no side covenants. People were to depend exclusively on the Lord because He is jealous for them. He's jealous for His name. They are His one and only. He is to be their one and only. So He cares for His people like a faithful husband. He has this protective love for them. See, God is not jealous in the way that we think about jealousy usually. He's not jealous because he feels insecure. He's not, you know, he feels bad when his people are, are tempted to you know, stand on the street corner and offer themselves 
to another lover, the gods of the land, who they think can provide for them if they just perform well enough. No, his jealousy is a reflection of his love for the people, for his bride, idols, all the, all the hosts of lovers keep the people from the Lord. It keeps him from the salvation that only he can provide. That's why he's jealous. Now, if only the people would be as jealous for him as he is for them. So they're going to show their allegiance to, to God by obedience to these commands. If you love me, if you are my one and only, you will obey my commands. We hear from Jesus in the New Testament. A lot of repetition here uh, from chapters 20 through 23. I mentioned a sampling. Uh, one commentator kind of grouped these all together. He says, you know, one section is keeping a regular pattern for worship, verses 18 through 20, observing God's holy rest is there, verse 21, offering to God their very best. Uh, more in verses uh, 22 through 26. We see these feasts, three feasts a year, that would help the Israelites focus, give their attention to God, uh, grow in trust for Him. We find the Sabbath rest mentioned again. That is a huge theme in Exodus. A regular rest deepens faith. It models before a watching world what or, or who is central in the life of the people. And what do we do for our one and only? What do we do for those that we love the most? We give our very best as an act of love. These are the, these are the covenant obligations. God would take the people as His own. He would renew covenant, but they must take Him as their own in obedience. So we see God will be glorified in this. He'll be glorified in saving the people from the chains of Egypt. He is glorified in saving His people from the slavery of sin. And the most awesome thing that God has done is to give His only Son over to death for you, for me. We see the works of His hands. I mean, no, no one can deny the majesty, and the power of God and all that He has made. But it's in saving sinners like us that His glory is most known. This is what we must believe. This is what we want all peoples everywhere to believe. To see the love and forgiveness of God in the face of Christ. So you know there's a question coming here for the church. Here it is. Is it your desire and mine that everyone we know, that all of our neighbors would worship the Lord? Is that really our desire? That every one of them would see the glory of God and saving from their sin. And there's nothing more marvelous. There's nothing so awesome as to see a child of darkness come into the light. I think most of the time, you know, we want to get along with our neighbors, which can be hard enough at times. If we can just get along, hey, they're there for, they're there for me, we're there for them, then, then we're good. We've kind, of, we've kind of got that down. Um, but is our desire really for them or just for us? Do we desire a one and only relationship for them with the covenant Lord of the earth? Um, if that's going to happen, um, then that one and only must be true of us as a church. What covenants have you made? And maybe you haven't you know, signed on the dotted line with a witness. 
how are you buddying up with the gods of the land? Who or what are we letting into our homes, into our places of worship, much less marrying? I mean, that, that's the picture. Marriage is that picture we find throughout the scriptures of God's faithfulness. The covenant love between a husband and wife is between God and his church. A marriage outside the covenant of God, outside the faith, a bad idea. It was then, it is now. It only invites idolatry. So if you're a disciple of, of Jesus Christ, then dating and marrying someone who does not share in your faith, then that shouldn't even be on the table. Not even a consideration. You think, well, we, we get along fine, there's, there's good chemistry here, and they went to church, he went to church, or she went to church one time and, and promises to go to church with me. I think that's great. And as a friend, you pray for them. Maybe you do go and worship them, with them and you watch what the Lord does in their hearts before you even consider the covenant of marriage. You must be in covenant with God before you're in covenant with one another. Which is a huge topic, I realize. Plenty of important conversations to be had around there. But one more thing on these covenant obligations before we see that renewal and that radiance. Okay, maybe two things. The Lord is gracious, compassionate. Praise Him for who He is, for His jealousy of His own. He extends forgiveness willingly and eagerly, but we must not presume upon His mercy. Presume upon His forgiveness. The repetition of these commands not only shows us that He is merciful, but we can't presume upon this. One, uh, it was a German poet, his name was Johann Hein, rather influential in the 19th century, uh, particularly in the literary scene in France. And on his deathbed, he, he was asked if God would forgive him. Um, his answer has, has been recorded. It says, of course God will forgive me, that's his job. Mercy and forgiveness are part of God's character, but it's not his job as if he was somehow obligated or constrained to forgive because someone happens to say he's forgiving. You know, this German poet presumed something that may have cost him an eternal inheritance with his Creator. We can have assurance of God's mercy and forgiveness as we live in covenant loyalty to Him, in obedience to His enduring law. Again, that, that law is summarized. Love for God. Love for neighbor. If we do not love God, we cannot love our neighbor really and truly and honestly. If there's no love for neighbor, we are not in love with our God. So how do we do this? We put this, this word, Exodus 34, we put you know, Deuteronomy 5, Exodus 20, we put that in front of us. And we seek to obey, obey in greater measure the one that... We love. That's our source of confidence and assurance. We work out our salvation with fear and trembling, Paul says. Not because our salvation is ours to work out or accomplish. It is because our works, our obedience, show us who we love. And if our faith really is fixed upon the one that we love. What do we do for the ones we love? The one that we love, we offer our very best in obedience and you know, translates into the best of ourselves, our time, our gifts. 
it all belongs to God anyway, then are we giving him our very best of who we are? The people offer their best in sacrifice. Now here's what we read in Hebrews 13. Through him then let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise that is the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. So Moses writes down the commands that he had not written down already. Verse 27, we learn that as part of this 40-day period, likely the second 40-day period on the mountain, uh, that he was fasting. He fasted for uh, the sins of the people, really an expression of his penitence on their behalf. And God honors this. He relents from pouring out his wrath. And he returns to the people with these uh, tablets, with these enduring words. But this time he looks a little different. So let's pick up in verse 29. When Moses came down from Mount Sinai, with the two tablets of the testimony in his hand, as he came down from the mountain, Moses did not know that the skin of his face shone because he had been talking with God. Aaron and all the people of Israel saw Moses, and behold, the skin of his face shone, and they were afraid to come near him. But Moses called to them, and Aaron and all the leaders of the congregation returned to him, and Moses talked with them. Afterward, all the people of Israel came near, and he commanded them all that the Lord had spoken spoken with him on Mount Sinai. And when Moses had finished speaking with them, he put a veil over his face. Whenever Moses went in before the Lord to speak with him, he would remove the veil until he came out. And when he came out and told the people of Israel what he was commanded, the people of Israel would see the face of Moses, that the skin of Moses' face was shining. And Moses would put the veil over his face again until he went in to speak with him. It must not have felt very different for Moses. He didn't even know this about himself, that his face was actually glowing, shining with the supernatural light of being in God's presence. Maybe you've seen the pictures, or maybe somehow you've seen this firsthand, but that that blue glow that comes from a nuclear reactor. Um, Somehow these charged particles emit this electromagnetic radiation. In the, in the movies, that's right, right before everything blows up, when you see that happening. Um, but Moses has just been exposed to this divine radiation from his time with the Lord. Marvelous display of God's glory. Even just seeing a glimpse, just the backside, had a lingering effect on Moses. Literally glowing with the glory of God. It's interesting, the word there to describe Moses' face, it's used one other time in the Old Testament, same three consonants, just a little different vocalization in Psalm 69, but it's, it's used to describe the horns of a bull on display. And so in an older translation of the Bible in uh, Latin, on the Latin uh, Vulgate it was called, they, they actually translated verse 29, reading that Moses had horns. And so if you look at some pictures from a long time ago in the 4th century, you'll see Moses depicted with horns. And some of them have rays of light that kind of look like horns, which I think might be a little more accurate. I mean, if Moses had real horns, you could understand why the people would be running. They saw him. That would be really weird. Um, But they keep their distance. They keep their distance for the same reason that they, they want to stay away from the mountain. The glory of God is near. The Lord is present in this afterglow of Moses, and that's what sends them scrambling. 
Because they know they deserve God's judgment. The Lord's holiness in the face of Moses, quite literally in their face, is frightening to them. So when Moses realizes uh, what's happening, he puts them in ease, calls them, um, told them they could, could draw closer, first the leadership and then the rest of the people. But imagine the effect that this would have in the camp. I for us to even picture what Moses' face may have looked like. You know, when Moses would share the commands that God had given him, well, he's in the tent and from the mountain, his face unveiled, they could, they could see the glory and authority of the word that's being spoken to them. They, they would know the Lord was present with them, even if it was only in, in the glowing face of the mediator. They would actually affirm Moses. Oh, Moses, we don't know what's happened to him. You know, when he went up on the mountain? Well, now, now there's no doubt. He's been in the presence of the Lord. So he would, he would wear that veil only when he was not in the tent with the Lord, when he was not speaking the word of the Lord to the people. And he wore that veil not because it was so frightening, but because the glory would fade. When he would go meet with the Lord in the tent, they would be recharged again. But that glory would fade, and so covering his, covering his face with a veil would prevent the people from seeing the unfading glory. There would be no doubt that when, when his word was spoken, it was unveiled and the glory uh, was present. So being in the presence of God changed Moses, even if he didn't realize it as first. Uh, it's no less true for you, no less true for me. When we meet with God by faith, we're changed. We, we see him, we get to know him as He truly is. Become more like Him. More the image bearers that we've been made to be. Loving what He loves. Hating what He hates. Which may not be noticeable in us at first. But others are going to see this. Others will know the difference when we spend time uh, with our God. Dr. Reichen, he mentions that uh, you know, what we see in Moses. Moses is looking at God and not himself, and that's what makes the difference. Our, our life in Christ, our Christianity, you know, if it's based on performance, what it is we're doing, what it is we're not doing, as we compare ourselves to others, then we're constantly looking here at ourselves. That, that, that's not a gospel-centered life. That is a me-centered life. Maybe, maybe with the gospel coming alongside we're to fix our gaze upon Christ. Spend time with our Savior in prayer. Spend time in His Word, in worship. In this we reflect His glory to others. There's a, there's a church sign just up 107, uh, right before you get to uh, the gravel ridge light there. Maybe you've seen that. Very well-known picture. Like the moon, are you reflecting the sun? S-O-N. That only happens when we spend time with Him. King David, on his journey to the throne, and it was quite a journey, he writes in Psalm 34, I sought the Lord and He answered me and delivered me from all my fears. Those who look to Him are radiant. Their faces shall never be ashamed. So when we spend time in the presence of the Lord, it, it affects us, it humbles us. Others are going to see this. They're going to see when the opposite is true as well. And we're not recharging with His presence and worship, time in His Word. 
uh, that glory begins to fade in us. So the glory of God seen in Moses, that would fade, but it's not the last time that Moses is with the Lord on a mountain. Do you remember the New Testament? Moses shows up on a mountain, which is a pretty sweet truth all in itself. We have recognizable, we are embodied recognizable people in the life to come. But so here's Moses on the mountain. Elijah is there with him. And this time he is speaking with God in the person of Jesus Christ. Moses has, has asked the Lord, Lord, show me your glory. So he gets a glimpse. He sees the backside of God's holiness and glory. But in Matthew 17... Okay, it's, it's been answered in full. He has seen the glory of God fully in the face of Jesus. So there's, there's some beautiful parallels here between uh, Jesus transfigured on that mountain before his disciples and the radiance of Moses' face after being in the presence of God. Moses the mediator reflects the glory of God that, that fades when he's not in his presence. Jesus the mediator of a new, better covenant, doesn't reflect the glory of God. He is the glory of God. And it's a glory that is unfading. When Jesus takes on our humanity, He's no less glorious as the God-man, but His glory is, his glory is veiled. But on that mountain, the disciples get, well, they get a glimpse. Not the full, effulgent splendor of the Lord Jesus. They would have been dead if that happened. But for their humanity, you know, what they could take in their humanity. They could see Jesus in all of His inherent glory and the gospel that He is and represents as transforming, as everlasting. And this is where the Apostle Paul goes into second, uh, where he goes in 2 Corinthians 3. It's a large section. We've heard it uh, read um, earlier in the service. But showing the church how the ministry of Moses and the law points to Jesus. Read just that, you know, verse 7 again. Now if the ministry of death carved in letters on stone came with such glory that the Israelites could not gaze at Moses' face because of its glory, which was being brought to an end, will not the ministry of the Spirit have even more glory? So in defending his ministry, Paul is he's arguing from the lesser to the greater. The old covenant, the, Mos- uh, the, the, the mediator in Moses was glorious, it was wonderful, but it was fading away. Now the new covenant with Jesus as the mediator is even more glorious, even more wonderful, and it's not fading away. It's permanent. So Paul sees the church, which means he sees the New Testament. He sees, he sees us in covenant relationship with our God. The church, Christians today are standing in that, in that stream, belonging to God's chosen people now as part of the new covenant. Um, it's a covenant that can only be understood in light of the old. The law mediated by Moses. The law cannot save. The people have shown us that over and over and over again. We prove that every day in our rebellion against God. Only the mediator can save. We have a mediator who is so much better than Moses. A mediator whose glory is unfading. And Paul, Paul refers to, to the veil in a few different ways in this passage, but 
to read of Moses and his work as mediator to see the glory on his face and not see the glory of Jesus is actually to miss the meaning, the very purpose for which the Lord chose Moses. And we're just getting into this in our uh, Sunday school class in hermeneutics, how to interpret the Bible. We've already emphasized that Jesus is that golden strand that holds all the scriptures together. Paul says through this language, when you read Moses, when you see his face shining with glory, you should see the glory of Jesus that never fades. That's what we need to see in Exodus 34. The glory of Jesus. The transforming power of the gospel. That's just It's in our face with this picture of Moses. As we gaze upon Christ, as we read his word, The Spirit works in us, transforming us, continues to transform us from one degree of glory to another. Let's thank Him for that. Lord God, we do praise You. You do not give up on us, that You are working in us by the power of Your Holy Spirit. Lord, You've lifted that veil of our understanding, the veil over our hearts, that we might know You and love You more. Lord, we thank You that You help us in understanding your word to us. And as we see the, the face of Moses, Lord, we see the, the glory of the Lord Jesus, an unfading and permanent glory. The glory that we are growing more and more like as your people. Lord, we thank you and we praise you for this word. Work it into our hearts, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.